Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We have a returning guest. I think one of our first three-peat guests, William Kelly. He's a deputy editor for The Wine Advocate, covering Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, Madeira, and English sparkling wine, amongst many other things. We're going to be talking about the state of Bordeaux. Since we last talked, William has taken on the reviewing for the Bordeaux region and I'm sure has lots of insights like he always does. So welcome back to the show, William. Thanks very much for having me back. It's a pleasure. This time, focusing on Bordeaux specifically, I just want to get off because I know that you're obviously a wine collector as well. And not only just drinking Burgundy, you're drinking a lot of Bordeaux and a lot of aged Bordeaux, right? I think that helps set a lot of context for any time you go into a region like Bordeaux. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was my first love in wine and it was really the region. And an old mentor, a family friend introduced me to a lot of the great Bordeaux of the 40s, 50s and 60s. It's what I was drinking a lot at university, more than Burgundy, because Burgundy is, is more complicated to understand. It's harder to get access to the wines. The whole point of Bordeaux, if you like, is it's the one you can always have access to, like Champagne. You, know, you go to Tahiti and you're in a restaurant, you can get Mouton Cadet and Dom Perignon, right? It's the wine that's everywhere. And so I think it's a logical point of entry. I think today, less so for a lot of people. And that's one of the real changes that's happened in the wine world in the last 15, 20 years, is that Bordeaux is no longer part of everybody's sort of wine education who's interested in wine. So yeah, no, so it was a huge passion for me. I've got bottles in my cellar back to the 20s. Nothing really before then, but I've got Moreau's 21 on back to 24, a lot of old Pichon de Lalonde back to 20, 28, 29, things like that. So yeah, I drink these wines an awful lot. And when my predecessor decided to move on, I really wanted to try to bring some of that experience to contemporary border and then to see where we could take things from perspective of somebody who's very passionate about the wines, but never had the opportunity to talk about them before. So is there any other major updates that you want to cover around what's changed with you specifically at The Wine Advocate since episode 62 and 68? Not particularly, I think. I mean, Bordeaux has been a huge professional challenge, and I really wanted to try to evolve our coverage there. Obviously, Robert Parker's legacy is uh, huge and much more important in Bordeaux than in Burgundy. And I think in the sort of decades since he's actively been reviewing Bordeaux's wines, he cast a very long shadow. And I think perhaps as a publication... People tried to take their own stance, but they also felt, you know, as the French say, for Pécresse dans le soup, you shouldn't disrespect your elders. I think it was a delicate thing for people to negotiate. I certainly wouldn't have liked to do it myself directly after Bob to take over Bordeaux. But so much has changed in the last decade. The region has been going through the last five, ten years, a transformative agronomic revolution and a lot of new generation of winemakers that have come to the lead at their estates that weren't around when Bob was around. So I don't really think it's comparable. I no longer sort of feel that taking a different direction, if you can even call it a different direction in Bordeaux in any way, inappropriate or disrespectful to our legacy. In fact, I think it was absolutely time to take a sort of fresh approach and also to think about the methodology of tasting in Bordeaux a bit differently. Sort of bring essentially the same sort of approach I brought to Burgundy and Lone in Burgundy to Bordeaux, just lots of visits, surplus, very few centralized big tastings and so on. But we can get into all of those sorts of nitty gritty points later. But that's been the big professional engagement of the last two years has really been trying to forge a new direction for Bordeaux coverage in the wine advocate. Yeah. So you mentioned how Bordeaux's been going through a lot of changes and it's almost been on like a bit of a roller coaster where it was the undisputed champion of the wine world, if you want to call it that, for many decades, if not over a century, and then sort of had a massive decline relative to all the other regions maybe coming up and then a little bit of a resurgence as of late. 
Going way back, how did Bordeaux even establish itself as the leading region of the world of wine? I think it really depends on what market you're in, what the leading wines are. I think it was France's most successful commercial wine. It's a commercial wine region, not, not in a pejorative sense, but simply it's a region that orders a large commercial port city and the people running the estates of Bordeaux from this milieu. This is a trading city. So commerce, not in the pejorative sense, is key to Bordeaux's identity. That meant that Bordeaux has, for a long time, the top wines of Bordeaux have been majoritarily export products, right? This is not really the same as Burgundy. Burgundy was a high-prestige wine drunk a lot by the French nobility before the revolution and then started to be shipped around, but Burgundy doesn't have a port. It's not so well adapted. It's also more fragile. It's not so well adapted to sort of traveling internationally. In the 18th, 19th century, wines of Burgundy were immensely prestigious, but they were always very, very expensive and very scarce and exclusive, and in many cases sort of not monopolized, but drunk more by elites. Bordeaux has always been the great sort of wine of the middle classes, of the bourgeoisie, if you like. And this is an export product. It ships very well. It's an Atlantic city. And so the Anglo-Saxon world, especially for, for whom the wines were really made beginning in the early 19th century, when the style of wine started to change to make these sort of more gutsy, tannic, structured, deeper colored reds. Those were the markets that were always historically sort of dominated by Bordeaux. I think 50 years ago, the idea of someone just drinking Burgundy, not drinking Bordeaux, was kind of unthinkable. This was part of everybody's wine diet for the much smaller group of people who were interested in wine back in those days, because wine has democratized hugely since, of course. What went wrong? Well, I mean, we also lived through a sort of period of about 30 plus years when nobody really talked about Burgundy. Burgundy became a real niche thing and brought together all the limelight. I think a lot of that was due to the influence of Robert Parker, who was a very staunch advocate for the wines of Bordeaux, absolutely. And wrote obviously less about Burgundy beginning in the late 80s when he wasn't visiting Burgundy anymore. So... I think that gives us an unflated sense of the reversal that happened. If you go back 100 years, Burgundy was very prominent and so was Bordeaux. But there was this complete flip that happened from Burgundy being absolutely forgotten about to suddenly rising to a position of complete ascendancy and Bordeaux simultaneously crashing, losing a lot of market share. But I think much more importantly than that for me, because who cares about market share if you're selling out? And the key thing is it lost the sort of intellectual, cultural dominance of the wine trade and in the last 15 years, everywhere in the world has started to talk about terroir, started to essentially adopt the Burgundian paradigm about wine to such an extent that it's so built into their own discourses that they're almost trapped in a discursive world where their wines could never be as good as Romain Conti. It's almost tragic because 30 years ago in the New World, people talked about grape variety and brand and people in Champagne talked about brand and the house style, whatever. And people talked about chateau style. People weren't really talking about terroir outside of especially Burgundy. And today everyone's adopted the Burgundian paradigm. Now everybody's playing on Burgundy's playing field. So it's kind of a home match for Burgundy these days. What really went wrong for Bordeaux, I think, was simply the pricing of especially a little bit 09, but also the, especially the 2010 futures. You know, I have friends in the UK. I have a friend in the UK who's got a couple of cases of 09 Chateau Margaux. He says he's waiting to open the first bottle until it's as worth as much as he paid for it on Primeur. And it still isn't worth what he paid for it over 10 years later, huh? People remember that, and especially if you have an aging demographic by your ones, they're even more likely to remember it. So and I'm worried that that mistake may be repeated a little bit with 2022. Everybody's very excited about the wines. There's some great, great wines, but why would you buy a future if it's not favorably priced, right? So yes, I think there's a combination of sort of losing intellectual ascendancy as concepts of terroir came to be foregrounded in everybody's sort of wine conversation, if you like, and simultaneously making some commercial mistakes that resulted in Bordeaux getting a bit on the back foot. What are some other aspects with the rise of Burgundy that impact Bordeaux? I mean, obviously the wines, different grapes, there's 
the accessibility is a lot different in terms of like you can enjoy Burgundy young or old, but Bordeaux, you kind of need to age it a little bit more, although that's changing a little bit. Mm. So I'm curious on like how, what other impacts are there besides just the terroir versus pricing? That is definitely changing a little bit. I think it's worth saying that it's changing, in fact, more than a little bit, a lot, as people manage a lot of technical questions. I mean, to take a step back, why is Bordeaux hard to drink young? Now, firstly, obviously, you're talking about more tannic grape varieties inherently. But a lot of the harshness of tannins can be mitigated by ripeness. So why were white-blooded wines harsh if the grapes were ripe? The answer was, in fact, a lot of these estates, very big blocks, were all picked at one time, starting whatever was most convenient, maybe north to south, or away from the chateau, getting closer to the chateau. So today, people are breaking up those blocks, picking little sub-blocks, sub-blocks, sub-blocks at perfect maturity, maybe waiting two, three days, paying the harvesters to do nothing in between. Then similarly, how gently you handle the fruit. All of these things influence the extraction and the quality of the tannins. And similarly, elevage. You can do a lot to make Bordeaux much more attractive without kind of changing that fundamental DNA. But what has the ascendancy of Burgundy brought to Bordeaux? I think a certain amount of resentment, probably. I think people don't understand why these sort of very humble regional bottlings of like Aligote are more expensive than a case of Lafitte and things like that. I think people in Bordeaux are a bit perplexed by that. And I think they have some grounds to be perplexed in some ways because, you know, a case of Lafitte is still a very nice thing to have in the cellar, you know. <laughs> and I think there's a potential pitfall is that they might try to follow this sort of Burgundian model. And it goes back to the point I made at the beginning. The whole selling point of Bordeaux is that you can always get the wines. Selling point of Burgundy is that you can never have the wines. <laughs> you know, it's the, <laughs> the aesthetics of scarcity versus the aesthetics of plenitude, if you like. I think a lot of people in Bordeaux see what's happening in Burgundy and think, oh, if we can only reduce the supply by sequestering product in storage and to late release and making even more of a rigorous selection to make less and less Grand Vin, more and more second and third wine, whatever, and maybe break down. I mean, I'm sure we're going to see this soon. We're already seeing a few people playing around with parcelaire bottlings in Bordeaux. We can create the scarcity necessary to push up the prices. And I just don't think that's part of Bordeaux's sort of historic DNA. And you're looking at, you combine Lafitte and Mouton or Archfield, and you have the same surface area as the entire Volnay Premier Cru appellation, with the difference that there are over 35 producers in the village of Volnay alone making Premier Cru. To say none of all the other producers in other villages making Volnay Premier Cru, there's just so much more wine. It would be, for me, a mistake to follow that kind of model. So I hope that they don't. They would have to be like 100 times smaller to <laughs> really drive that same level of scarcity. It's crazy. And you think the Appalachian of Poyak is 36 times bigger than the Appalachian of Hermitage. Huh? I mean, wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of wine, which is why the funny thing is I probably cover more of a percentage of Bordeaux's total production than I do in Burgundy, even if I publish about three times more tasting notes on Burgundy than I do Bordeaux. But simply the scale of these producers is so big in some cases. Not all. Of course, there's a lot of tiny properties, in especially in right bank and so forth. But in general, recovering a lot of ground, you only need, you know, if you review 12 wines, you probably reviewed 90% of the wine produced in Saint-Chaudien. I could never review 90% of the wine produced in Merceau. In the village alone, there are over 50 producers. They all make 10 wines plus. <laughs> so it's very different, yeah. And what about internationally? Because, I mean, obviously, the Bordeaux varieties and the Burgundian varieties are planted everywhere in the world, or many places in the world. I'm curious on the impact of the international competition when you look at the differences between you have Napa in Australia and Italy making really top Cabernet blends or Merlot blends. And obviously you have great Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in other parts of the world, but the competition doesn't seem to be as fierce in those categories. I mean, maybe due to that scarcity, but I'm curious on your thoughts on international competition in the two regions, if you compare and contrast them. I mean, I think it gets back to definitely to more than just scarcity, because if you think about what's the premise of the sort of terroir philosophy, and that's a whole subject that can be interrogated, that's a subject for a whole other discussion, but to take it at face value, it is that what makes 
why it's interesting is the fact that they're different. And so that gives Burgundy a huge advantage. And I think as a region, it's tended to play those cards more strongly. And, and Burgundy's had its flirtations with international styles and it continues to. Okay, so it's not just a good versus bad sort of polarity that I'm trying to establish here far from it. But the Burgundians have done a better job of advocating for the interest of their product as being derived from its originality. Bordeaux, I think quite a lot of people saw the success of Super Tuscans in that cabinet and decided to try to make their wines more like that. And this even more so, even worse for me in some ways, nobody talks about this. We talk about internationalizing styles for the reds. But what happened to the white wines of Bordeaux? I mean, what did Denis de Bourdieu, um, by popularizing these sort of very low temperature estuary fermentations of Sauvignon, Bloc Melon, all of that, kind of completely destroyed a whole category of wine, much more so than some of the consultants who've impacted red wine stars in Bordeaux, because they were always holdouts. Today, it's very, very difficult to find a white Bordeaux that doesn't smell aromatically like any Sauvignon from anywhere else in the world. And that really wasn't the region's history at all. But people have almost forgotten how good those old wines, like the old David Lebriand or even the old Carbonneau from the 70s and before things like that were incredible wines. Sort of wines that would interest Burgundy drinkers today, ironically enough, which is exactly the market that a lot of people would love to capture, of course. I think that sort of flirtation with, if you try to play on other people's playing fields, you're always liable to lose. And nobody, no matter how polished your talent and how ripe your fruit in Bordeaux, you can never make us one as sumptuous as high pH Napa Cabernet. And so why try? You know, whereas in Napa, you'd really struggle. And some people get pretty close, you know, and have a lot of Philip Tony in the cellar downstairs and whatever. But some people get pretty close. You struggle to make wines that are as fine and elegant and aromatically complex rather than just being very fruit-driven than you can in Napa. So I think the future for Bordeaux and the intelligent people that have discovered is on the one hand to play to your strengths and to what you can only do in Bordeaux, which is to make some very unique styles of wine. And on the other, to sort of polish some of the hard edges, which is largely due to not doing stupid things like, you know, picking your vineyard in small bits when it's ripe. This is not revolutionary. It doesn't require any special machinery or anything. It just requires lots of logistical organization and investment, which is not the same. So it's not about sort of finding tricks to make the wines more appealing. It's about actually just doing the sort of things that you would do if you were a producer of a much smaller scale winery, like a winery in Burgundy. It's funny, you know, you meet consumers are sort of I meet all sorts. I meet people who like the massive monster truck wines. I like people who will only drink the old-fashioned stuff. And I meet people who say, well, isn't it terrible that they're doing so much sorting in Bordeaux because it makes things too homogenous? Well, okay, I mean, you can push optical sorting technology too far, sure. But nobody objects in Burgundy to picking a small parcel exactly on the right day. Everyone acknowledges that that makes the best wine. So in Bordeaux, you cut up your estate into a lot of small blocks and you pick each one absolutely on the right day to get more homogenous maturity across your whole property. Of course, it makes better wine. There's no question about that. But people are so sort of suspicious of technological improvement today, especially sort of hardcore lovers of old school Bordeaux, that they, I think they don't necessarily believe anything they <laughs> know about improvements. It's terrible. A lot of drinkers, especially sort of old diehards for the traditional style of Bordeaux, are extremely suspicious and jaundiced, which is a tragedy because they're people who love the wines of the region. Earlier, you mentioned the exorbitant pricing on 09 and the 10 vintages on Premier. Following that, you had the 11, 12, 13, which are fairly lackluster vintages. And I'm curious on having this crazy pricing and then having a string of less attractive vintages changes some of that perception from the consumer perspective. I mean, I think that's one of the problems of Bordeaux is an overemphasis on the concept of vintage. And in fact, if you do blind tastings today, especially 11s and also some 12s that you may well like better than 9s and 10s. I mean, 11, I did a 9, 10, 11 shovel block side by side a few weeks ago, and it's a comparison I've done quite a few times. I always prefer the 11. Now, I think in time, maybe the 9 and 10 may surpass it, but we're already 10 years out of the gates, and I'd still prefer the 11, which is much more 
perfumed and much more typically Cheval Blanc styled and, you know, it has everything going for it. And in 12, there's some really great 12s like Eglise Guinée and especially Pomerals and 2012 are fantastic wines. But the Bordeaux system either takes a vintage as a whole and runs with it or kind of doesn't and damns it with faint praise. And I think that's what happened with those. It's not a situation, no one's going to sneer at you if you turn up with uh, 2013 uh, Rousseau de Bez instead of turning up with 2010. They're just going to be happy you brought a Rousseau de Bez or a Dauvinet or whatever. So Burgundy doesn't have that problem to the same extent. Unless and less so as the focus in Burgundy becomes increasingly producer-oriented above terroir and above especially vintage. But there's always this sense that a so-called weak Bordeaux vintage has this handicap. And I think critics play into it. Honestly, I think consider a vintage like 1993, which is generally speaking quite a horrible vintage in Bordeaux. But there are some really lovely wines like La Fleur, Aubryon, La Mission Aubryon. Those wines, nobody ever scores those more than like 91, 92, simply because you don't want to look stupid by giving a good review to a wine from a bad vintage. Now, I believe that you can make great wines in so-called bad vintages. Bad vintages are a human creation, really. Bad vintages are when you submit to what nature gives you instead of finding ways agronomically and technically to get beyond that. And it's possible to get beyond that. That's why we've had so few atrocious vintages since 2013 in Bordeaux, and we have so few in Burgundy. So I think the way those wines were talked about didn't do them a great service. I don't think I know anyone who owns any 2013 Bordeaux, so I'm not sure who drank those wines. But I think these are wines that are sort of memory hold, right? But I think the thing that people remember is getting screwed on 2010 on promoter prices. So I think that's much more significant than these sort of heterogeneity and vintages since. And then you've had, since then, wow, we've had 16, which I think is going to be for my generation what 1961 was for my mentor's generation. Fantastic vintages in 19 and 20 and now 22. People who like a very different style of wine. I mean, vintages like 18 and 15 are great, especially people who like a more sort of new world vision of Bordeaux. So you mentioned how modern viticulture and winemaking has really helped even out the vintages. How has it helped improve quality and consistency overall in Bordeaux? Immensely. This is a very short answer. What really happened, I think, was with the 1982 vintage, Bordeaux entered into a period of new prosperity and everybody built new wineries and whatever. But they were still dealing with the agronomic legacy of the late 60s, 70s, which was very high yields, very agrochemical intensive viticulture, which is to say, I think, over 60% of France's vineyards were cultivated using herbicides by the 1980s. Right? And this is true of a lot of top Bordeaux states, a lot of potassium fertilizers. Everyone had gone over to also to planting clones on rootstocks that favored early ripening. So you had all of these sort of things lined up. And through into the mid-2000s, into I think even the late 2000s, through to 2009, 10, people tried to fix any problems such as that but mainly in the cellar. So maybe they would do some green harvesting to try to concentrate the fruit and they would strip all the leaves off to try to get more sun on it, more concentration, more ripeness, and whatever, and a bit of raisining because people were seeking those sorts of flavors then. But then in the cellar, it was tank leads, saignet, it was osmosis, it was use of extraction enzymes, hot temperature fermentations, putting the wine into barrel hot, doing non-electric in barrel, all of these sort of techniques which make wines richer to compensate for a sort of deficit in concentration coming from ultimately rather sort of overcropped vineyards. And suddenly when you had vintages like five and then especially nine and 10, you were getting more than enough ripeness. You were getting huge concentration and huge levels of tannin. And people suddenly started realizing that the issues were actually going to be freshness and like aromatic vibrancy and sort of, you know, wines that don't taste like raisins 10 years after bottling. And so suddenly there was, I think, an internal reaction in Bordeaux. A lot of it was interested in the vineyards. How do you go from essentially sort of northeastern European viticultural style to a Mediterranean viticultural style, which is really the sort of transition we're having to make in Bordeaux? The things that will take a long time are rootstocks and clones, what you're planting, genetics, that takes 
better part of a generation to solve. But the short-term stuff is managing soils, going back to mechanical cultivation, cover crops, keeping your soils cool. Most of the plant actually that does the metabolizing is below the surface of the soil. So if you keep your soils cool, you do these things. Also, the deeper your rooting system, the more you're insulated against hydric stress, against sudden rainfall, things like that. So you don't have these huge pH jumps that are caused. If you have a herbicide a vineyard with very superficial rooting system, as soon as you get any rain or you're in a drought, your pH of your wine is destroyed, which is why in 2003, the wines were so disastrous in many cases, because superficial rooting systems combined with incredibly extreme sort of thermal shock. 2022 is much hotter, well, not much hotter, but it was appreciably hotter than 2003. And yet the wines are so much fresher. And I think this shows the advantage of promoting deeper rooting systems, living soils, and then not stripping all of the leaves that protect the fruit off the vines just systematically, which is what people used to do. They're just de-leafing systematically. So all of this canopy management, I mean, again, is a huge subject, results in much fresher tasting wines with much more sort of vibrant fruit. And you combine it with technical changes in the winemaking, gentler extraction and more reductive elevage. And you have wines that have the same degree of maturity as 09s and 10s, but have so much more energy and aromatic sort of range and dimension. And I think they will age much, much better. And, it, you know, people say, well, how do you know? Well, okay, we won't know until it's happened. But what I can say is that all across the wine world, if you have a more reductive elevage with fresher tasting fruit with a lower pH and you bottle it with less dissolved oxygen, the wine tastes better after 10, 15, 20 years than the alternative. So I don't think it's such a mystery. I mean, much like Premox in White Burgundy, it's not as much of a mystery as people make out. And I'm really not worried about how the best 19s, 20s, 22s are going to age at all. And all this is due to sort of technical work. Now, in Bordeaux, the people selling the wines are not the people who are doing these sorts of things. And that's a big difference with Burgundy. And the journalists generally don't have a sort of technical training in winemaking background. So the combination is that you have journalists come to meet proprietors and they talk about the artist who was commissioned to do the special commemorative label or the architect who did the new couverie and then they have a very nice lunch, whatever. And all of this stuff is kind of going under the radar. And I was shocked to see, and for a start, that's when journalists actually visit the estates, right? Because most Bordeaux en Primeur happens going to taste in the offices of negociants or trade bodies. So people not even visiting. And if they are, they're certainly not going to the vineyards, typically. And I was told recently, I went to, took half a day to walk the entire vineyards of all of the Metoc first growths. I don't know if they were lying to flatter me, but they all told me I was the first journalist who'd ever asked to go and walk around the vineyards of Lafitte. So the result is that we never heard about all of these things that were going on in Bordeaux. And I think that also, getting back to the question you asked earlier, has kind of impaired the region from retaking its rightful place in the world of wine is because people want to know. Today's wine consumer, I believe, wants to know about how the wines are made and why, and that there are passionate people doing thoughtful things behind the bottle. And no one was talking about that. And all these improvements in the vineyard and in the winery, how does that make the difference between the top chateau and the petite chateau? Is it make it bigger because the top have money to invest or smaller as everyone can apply these practices? A small chateau that has the volition and the means to follow that route can make enormous progress. And look at an estate like Clemenu in San Cristoli in the northern Medoc. This is about 20 minutes drive north of Santa Estef, depending on how fast you drive, of course. They started out with, I think, 0.4 hectares, something like that. Very modest origins, piece by piece today, it's, I think, 18 hectares. The level of viticulture they do with permanent intra-row cover crops, no missing vines, canopies beautifully managed, would not be out of place in one of the first rows. And the wine, which has no classification status whatsoever, is absolutely excellent. They've also then worked to create a sort of direct distribution system to complement the Place de Bordeaux and so on. So they get a bit more remuneration for all of that work, and it's working very well. 
the reality is it's very, very difficult for the majority of small estates in so-called sort of minor terroir. And there you have a real problem. And so the Clomanu of this world are the exceptions to the rule, unfortunately. The Bordeaux system is very much one that rewards pre-existing success. Like the Place de Bordeaux is great for distributing wine if you already have a reputation, for example. But who don't? How do you create a new brand? The vast majority of these petit chateaux, especially in the Maroc, don't even have a website. It's incredible. And they don't know, I mean, they don't know if I'm the wine spectator, I'm the wine advocate. They've never even heard of it. It's remarkable. I turn up at some of these places because I always make a point of every time I go to Bordeaux, I try to devote a day to visiting. I start at 8 a.m. We finish at 8 in the evening and we visit, I don't know, 15, 20 chateaux that have never been visited by the wine advocate or anyone else before just to see. And it's a complete different world. It's very rustic. It's backwards sort of stuff. And so know that that's a big problem. It's going to be a big problem. And you're going to see the top 150 brands in Bordeaux succeed hugely well. And the rest, it's a very bleak picture. There are only so many that we can save, I think. So you are seeing a bunch of larger chateaux acquired nearby estates and essentially adding them to their thing. I'm curious on how that helps build their business to give some context there as like, why would a chateau buy the nearby estate? Like, how does that help build their brand and their business as a larger chateau? Well, it gives them volume, you know, and then they can put that through all the distribution channels. And this is where Place de Bordeaux is very effective. You can sell them a huge volume of the second wine of Chateau X or the third wine of Chateau X. Then you can sell the Grand Vin of Chateau Y that no one's heard of. If you're a Poyac second growth and you double the surface area of your vineyards, and then you can produce 40% Grand Vin and 60% a second wine, and your 40% Grand Vin, or okay, so that's actually 90% of your historic surface area, and all of your second wine is coming from the stuff you bought in the inlands of Poyak, for example. You know, this is a hypothetical example, of course. And then you put that through distribution, you can get, I don't know, I mean, you can get a good price for that. You can probably get two to three times at least the price of what a chateau that no one's heard of under its name in inland Poyak, in the sort of sandy areas of inland Poyak, could get with exactly the same vineyards. So I think in terms of volume, you know, you can make 100,000 bottles of second wine and you can sell it and you can make some very good return on it. So I think it's interesting for people commercially, but if you're a tiny chateau that you don't have any name recognition, I think we're going to see, you know, people are going to try to get out of it in a variety of ways. One of the ways out of obscurity in other wine regions like the Loire and Beaujolais has been to go natural wine route. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more people trying to do natural wine in Bordeaux as a way to just differentiate themselves. There are a few people doing it. Unfortunately, Cabernet does not lend itself to making very sort of glue glue gulpable wines, but they, you know, but your carbonic maceration of cabinet is surprisingly drinkable. So I think we'll see more of that sort of thing. I think we'll see then more consolidation of big players buying up these little estates and rolling them into new entities. Look at something like La Tourcane of Bernard Magros. I don't know how many hectares it was to start, maybe 30, 35 hectares. Now it's what, over 200 hectares. He's bought some much better terroir than the ones he started with and rolled them into it. So you're going to see that sort of thing, big estates buying them to make more second wine and so on. You're also going to see more vines being ripped up. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.